So this uh, lecture this morning is on Plato's Euthyphro, and it's, it's a lovely little dialogue, and it is very small, and it's, you can read that book, The Last Days of Socrates by Plato, which comprises four short dialogues, the Euthyphro, the Crito, the Apology, and the Phaedo. So that's the book, it's well worth getting, Givon for in that one edition. Yeah. I remember that's the one I was taught in UCD in philosophy, first, first year they were teaching that. And it raises this big dilemma, I'm sure Michael has talked about it, the Euthyphro dilemma. And basically, in a nutshell, it's that question here. And this is the question, is something morally right because God commands it? Or does God command it because it is morally right? So this is the famous dilemma. And some people regard it as a, a kind of a false dilemma. Other people say it's a bit circular thinking. It does provoke thought. And um, you can see there, just the intro, I'll read out. Plato's dialogue with Euthyphro is centered around two men, Euthyphro and Socrates, who discuss. Now, it's become known in philosophy as the divine command theory. And the divine command theory is the view that morality is somehow dependent upon God, and the moral obligation consists in obedience to God's commands. So the whole of the dialogue is structured around the central question, um, right because God commands it, God commands it because it is right. Does that make sense? That's the horn of the dilemma. And we'll just, we'll keep rotating around it, doing a ratione around it, a kind of circumambulatio, you know, like a labyrinth. You keep moving in circles until you get to the centre. So that's what Socrates does in his dialectic. He keeps returning to this central question and rotating around this as, as the defining question of this dialogue. So one conclusion is, it would indicate, if it is right because God commands it, the conclusion would indicate that God has determined what is right or wrong arbitrarily, and no moral principle is self-evident. So it's got to be thought through. God commands it because it is right. That conclusion would indicate that what is morally right is independent of God's commands. Moral standards are sovereign from God, and there is morality without God. Now, this is just that poster there is one way of putting it. We'll see how Socrates does it, which is slightly differently, and we'll return to that famous dilemma towards the end of the talk. Is that okay? And I'll ask questions, and if you want to uh, interrupt and ask, feel free. There's no problems. So, the, sorry, don't encourage them. So, yeah. so the central, <laughs> no questions. The central Socratic question is, what is piety? And as you know, what Socrates does in all these dialogues is he tries to formulate a, a question which gets to the universal, rather than a quality of, let's say, courage, or an example of courage. He wants to know what courage or friendship or love is in its essence. So what he's trying to give us is the substance of something, not the shadow. Does that make sense? Yes. With a reference to Plato's famous allegory of the cave in Book 7 of the Republic. So this Euthyphro is talking about one question, what is piety? So what is piety? Well, there's been various definitions propounded and proposed. One is that it's a quality of being religious or reverent. That's one way of looking at piety. A pious person is somebody who is reverent. So piety connotes two things there, a duty and a devotion to God. Is that okay? That's one way of looking at piety. And it comes from the Latin pietas, pious, 
And as I say, it has that twofold connotation. Devoted or ju and dutiful. Dutiful and devout. And it was a Roman virtue with pietas, a man with pietas respected his responsibilities to the gods, his country and kin. So that's important to put in a cultural context. Because remember, Socrates didn't, he, he always said he was going to obey the law of the state, even when it meant his own execution. Remember, he wasn't going to leave the, st the state. He could have escaped, he didn't. Um, so it was very much to do with an awareness of your responsibilities to your God, your country, and your, your family, your kin and neighbour. So that was really the cultural context of Socrates' time. And it was usually seen in two ways, two types of piety. One was to the family and one was to your God. So you've got filial and religious piety. Does that make sense? That's the way piety was seen in those two ways. A kind of a twofold definition, duty and devotion, and a twofold um, attachment to the family, especially one's father in those days, and to one's God. And Aquinas quotes Cicero, I mean centuries later, I just thought it was a good quote, piety gives both duty and homage. So you've got what we ought to do, and then you've got what we desire to do, which is pay homage. So it's that lovely connotation of duty and desire. So the transcendent draws us, that's our desire, implanting the human heart as a sort of natural stroke supernatural virtue. The three of the three theological virtues, faith, open charity, and love. And then the duty, you know, one ought to worship in the temple or whatever in this case. So duty is something to do with service and homage is something to do with reverence. So is that okay as a preliminary just uh, opening it out? Yeah. <laughs> All right. And in Christianity, piety emerges uh, a few hundred years after Plato's death, and it's one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, this was concretized later in various councils. And they are the famous seven um, gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, Sophia, understanding, counsel, Fortitude. Fortitude, of course, was named by Plato as one of the four cardinal virtues, together with wisdom, justice, and temperance. Knowledge, piety is number six there, and fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord, I mean, they use that in the older versions. It's really kind of respect or devotion again. It's not the way we understand fear. So they're the interesting of the seven gifts of the Spirit. So just in the Christian tradition, piety is regarded as one of the the gifts of the spirit. Is that okay? <laughs> so it's seen as a moral religious virtue. So piety belongs to the virtue of religion. So it's seen as an arete, which is an excellence, a virtue. Um, and that's the way Aristotle is quite good at mapping the virtues and distinguishing between the moral and the intellectual. They're the natural virtues. Christianity added the supernatural virtues. So it's one of the moral virtues. And actually, if you want to fit it in anywhere, it's part of the virtue of justice. Now, what's piety to do with justice? Justice is rendering everybody their due. It's right proportion. It's harmony. So within the religious kind of culture that Socrates is coming from, it's the duty one renders to God. 
It's tendons, that old-fashioned word. You probably came across that in the youth of Rome. In the first few pages, the word tendons is mentioned, which is what we tend to God, what we give God. We render him as due. And as I said there, the four cardinal virtues which have exerted such an influence in Western moral philosophy, they all come from Plato. And that's then there listed. Wisdom, justice, temperance, fortitude. Fortitude or courage. Um, sometimes temperance is translated as prudence and wisdom and justice. These are the four cardinal virtues. Cardinal, because the word cardo means hinge. So the word cardinal, I mean, if you take the Catholic Church, the cardinal is the hinge between the bishops and the Pope. If there's no Pope, there's only for cardinals. So get that in the Anglican Church. No Pope, no cardinals. There's, there's bishops and archbishops. So the word cardinal comes from a hinge virtue between me and, let's say, religion or God. And Pope Francis, I just thought I'd add this, um, he just happened to say very recently <coughs> on the subject of piety, piety pertains to our deep bond with God, and he called it living in grace. So I just thought that was a nice way of looking at it as well in, the, in, that, in the, that tradition. So you can insert or inscribe the virtue of piety within a kind of moral and religious register. Is that okay so far? Yeah. So just what do we mean by reverence then, because the word has emerged there? Reverence is a kind of veneration. We revere something that's holy. It's a veneration. And it has a connotation of respect or awe in the sacred context. When consciousness encounters a numinous force, something that pierces through consciousness from the vertical dimension of being, rather than just the horizontal and it fills us with awe and wonder, marvel, which Plato said is the mark of the philosopher. Plato's famous definition, wonder is the mark of the philosopher. Indeed, philosophy is no other origin. And then Aristotle said, it is owing to their wonder that men both now begin and at first began to philosophize. So we're moved to marvel and wonder at that which is. And the question that emerges from the depths of the human heart is why is there something and not nothing? And that gives rise to this reverence before being, this marvel which moves us towards meaning in our quest for answers and certainty, which is an exigence, a demand of the human heart. So piety can be defined really as a reverence to God, and it leads to sacrifices, that's what they used to be called disciplines, rituals, rules, we think of the Jewish rules and observances of the Sabbath to keep holy, prayers, etc. Piety relates to zeal, there's a zealousness there connoted with that word, and even to holiness. And uh, Dr. Horan's giving a lecture here on March 28th on reverence, so that would be a nice one to complement the discussion in these lectures. So is that okay? So we've got piety and reverence just linked, conjoined, a slight difference between them, but very much correlated. Now, Socrates, um, we began with that lovely picture of Plato with his arm gesturing up to the world of the forms or essences, the epikine of the divine realm. Socrates is doing it as well, and just before he's executed. So his gaze is on something higher, than his physical pain and suffering, isn't it? 
his whole being is drawn up metaphysically into this super transcendent world of ideas or essences. So Socrates gives us a reminder. He believed in moral goodness as the one thing that really mattered and identified it with true knowledge. And as you know, he talked with all the great thinkers of his day. And Plato's proposition, and this is why it's so important to discuss, to dialogue, dialectic, <coughs> engage in conversation. And interestingly, conversation means, if you look at the word conversation, it's a flowing with somebody, con, rather than controversing, which is against somebody. Like communication is communion. It implies a unity. So you're trying to reach or establish a unity with the person. And I think that's why Plato famously says to philosophize is to learn how to dialogue. Because truth emerges in the space between two people, doesn't it, when we're, when we're discussing things. He also said to philosophize is to learn how to die. By which he means to let go of our attachments to the corporeal and the physical. To be drawn like Socrates to that which is unchanging and eternal. And we get glimpses of that in meditation, all sorts of things, art, nature. Something more, as Wordsworth says, this presence that suffuses all things, that rolls through all things. So wisdom in the Greek understanding, Sophia, that really was regarded as an awareness that we don't know. And Socrates, as you know, famously said it, I know that I know nothing. Later he says the only thing he did know was the law of love. Um, so, so many people parade and portray themselves as wise, but they don't know anything. So Socrates was revealing this and came to that stunning definition of wisdom, the recognition of one's own ignorance. It's a great one. And they say about Socrates, all the people around him, listening to his dialogues in the city streets, because <laughs> Socrates' philosophy was in the cities. Epicurus' was in the garden. The Stoics was from the painted porch. So they all had a different style of doing things. And they said about Socrates, he had a kindly heart, quick perception, patience, tact, cheerfulness, a kind of an impish or impudent sense of humour. And he was revered by his followers and reviled by his detractors. So he was a kind of philosophical prophet, and prophets are never respected in their own country. So he was executed in 399. And that execution disgusted Plato. So Plato changed his entire way of being through because of that uh, execution of a philosopher, and really moved from politics to philosophy. So that appears the cultural background from where Socrates is coming from in this discussion. Okay, and a bit more of the background then, just looking at the dialogue as a background. The Euthyphro supplies a sort of prologue. So when you read the first bit, it's really a prologue to the drama. And all Plato's dialogues are in dramatic form. They have personae, they have a plot, they have characters, they have a discussion, they have a conclusion, except in the Euthyphro. And the um, Lysis which is about friendship. He just leaves it hanging. I think the last line even is, could be corrected here, what is friendship? Having come to the entire dialogue, he, he drops it, he leaves us with it. Now, I'll talk about why he does that in a minute. Um, but, to go back to this, it shows us Socrates awaiting his trial, and last year we, with Michael we did the trial, the Phaedo, and informs us of the charges against him. 
Now, Euthyphro is the dialogue, but it's also a real person. We're told she's a religious expert. Now, of course, you know the way Socrates doesn't like this. The minute somebody arrives before Socrates, claiming to be an expert, Socrates gets irritated by this. And he wonders whether this person is really an expert at all. He's regarded as a seer. So we're left wondering, what does that mean? Can he actually see into the future? What does it mean to be a visionary? And the dialogue is all around, I've just called it there, the problem of piety. And I call it that simply because the Euthyphro dilemma raises a question which makes piety problematic. And we'll see what that means in a minute. Outside the courthouse, where he is shortly to stand trial, Socrates meets Euthyphro, who tells Socrates that he's going to charge his own father with manslaughter, and that's why Euthyphro is in court. So Socrates is kind of startled, as you would be, and asks how he can be sure that such conduct is consistent with the true nature of piety. Because this seemed to be so shocking to Socrates. Why? Because remember a few minutes ago, piety really was seen as a, as a filial connection with the father. And now this man is taking his own father to court. So Socrates now saying, well, this seems to be not pious, to be impious perhaps. Because what about the loyalty, the devotion, the duty we owe to our family, to our fathers? And he's intrigued a bit about this, even though he's about to face his own court case. So it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It just shows you where Socrates' interests were. Which one of us going to a court case involving us would be hanging around outside having a philosophical discussion. So I think that's really intriguing and important. Sometimes when I read these dialogues of Plato, it's not what he says sometimes, it's what's not said, what's hinted at. The, the silences of Socrates, the gestures, the actions, what he's doing. So here he is standing about to face the trial of his life um, and he was convicted on these two false charges of introducing new gods and impiety, corrupting the young. So he has time to dialogue, and that is Plato showing us through these dialogues, because Plato wrote nothing, how much, how important dialogue really is to get to the truth. And there's a hint in the word, isn't there? Dialegus, there's logos, dialogos. Dia to and logos is truth of the word or reason. So there's something about reason evident or inscribed in the dialogue of two people. So he's very interested in seeing where this goes because he's saying, well, I, Socrates, am being charged with impiety and you, Euthyphro, are bringing your own father on trial for manslaughter because clearly you believe he's contravening the law of piety. Let's have a discussion. Is that okay? So that's how that bit plays out. <laughs> Now, uh, Elenchus, which is the Socratic dialogue, drawing things out, though painful, is supposed to have beneficial effects on the soul of its victim. So you can imagine, if you're under interrogation from Socrates, that you would feel a little bit threatened, and it would be like a painful uh, curative remedy or poison. Plato uses the word pharmacon, which can be translated as cure, but it can also be translated as poison. So there's an ambiguity there what Socrates is doing. Wittgenstein once said, philosophy is an illness, 
and the cure is more philosophy. <laughs> so it's a bit like that. It's almost like a homeopathic principle. You, you cure the disease with a little bit more of the disease. And that's what Socrates is kind of doing in his dialoguing. He's, it is a little bit painful because he puts people on the spot. He says, you know, define your terms. What do you mean by that? But things emerge from that. And Euthyphro is so confident at the beginning of his own infallibility, of his own certainty. Now remember, that first comment I have on there, he's confident in his own infallibility. Wouldn't that have annoyed Socrates? Because remember his view of wisdom. Wisdom is dependent on the realisation that we don't know, in a way, what we're talking about. Remember St. Augustine said, if you understand that this is God, it is not God. So, we, in a way, we don't know what we're talking about. And Socrates didn't. Some of the time he was, he was just going with the thread that was emerging of conversation. So, Euthyphro, therefore, for all these reasons, is a fit subject for Socrates' beautiful phrase here, curative treatment. Plato uses, Plato uses that term. A therapeia. It's a kind of philosophical therapy. Logotherapy uses it. The work of Viktor Frankl that I, I'm involved in. He's always trying to dialogue with the patient or the client. The aim is to clear the mind of false assumptions, false preconceptions and presumptions, to make it open, receptive of real knowledge. So Socrates is never pushing things into somebody. When I lectured philosophy in both UCD and Trinity for over 25 years, it was a bit annoying because I really was trying to put stuff into students. And in a way, it's very against the Socratic method, which is drawing things out of students. And one time I forgot all my notes. I forgot even what lecture I was in. It was the wrong lecture. And somebody said, Dr. Costello, you do know this is your ethics class. And I didn't know. I thought it was my epistemology class. And I had no notes. So what I had to do is just say, well, what's the difference, do you think, between ethics and moral philosophy? And we had this amazing discussion. And then I highlighted with some quotes, etc. But it was it was better because it was drawing out, and that's the real meaning of the word education in Latin. The etymology is educare, to draw out. So Socrates' method is based on this principle of drawing out rather than putting in. The treatment is irritating for the patient. Euthyphro is the patient in a way, and Euthyphro is pompous. And it takes, he takes in good part, mainly he takes Socrates' gentle chiding or teasing. But the aim is always to move the mind to another way of thinking, a better way of thinking. And that's the aim of dialectic, as distinct from rhetoric. Rhetoric persuades. Dialectic shows the truth of things. And it is true that the argument in this dialogue is circular, but it offers clues. And I look at it as, I just walked in a labyrinth over the, over the last few days, and in a labyrinth you're just walking in circles and you might stumble in the centre. And that's the analogy between the contents of consciousness and the centre of pure consciousness. So it's as if Socrates keeps coming to the same point, the centre, from different directions, from different strands, like a labyrinth. And the elenchus, that word means this, it's the particularly Socratic method of eliciting or elucidating the truth of things to refute an argument. It's a very short dialogue, it's just over 20 pages, so you can read it in an hour or so, and it's full of light and it's a lovely little dialogue. So, 
Any comments or questions so far? Does that set the scene? Okay, I'll, I'll chance one. Yes. Uh, you seem to be saying that, you seem to have just said that the question what is piety is uh, a circular And if that's the case, then uh, there isn't a conclusion. And the other question is how do we define it? He was charged with impiety and corrupting the young. What in that time was uh, a definition of uh, corruption? Okay, so two points. Let me take the last one first. Socrates was convicted of two charges, impiety and corruption of the young. Corrupting the young because he was... So, let me go back. The sophists were a group of teachers and they were teaching the young. They were teaching the young tricks of the trade of rhetoric so that they could win debates in courts of law. And they were charging quite a lot of money to teach the sons of the wealthy. Does that make sense? Now, Socrates, because he was also ostensibly walking around talking and talking to the young, he was seen to be a sophist, but he wasn't because he wasn't charging, he wasn't teaching rhetoric, he was teaching dialectic. So there was an assumption that he was also corrupting the minds of the young. So corruption in those days meant a kind of a moral corruption of the mind. In other words, teaching rhetorical tricks so that, as Plato famously says, the weak argument can defeat a strong argument. Now, it can't in truth, but it can by pandering to the emotions, you know, this kind of thing. Politicians do that. would be counter to the interests of the state. Uh, well, the interests of the state were really to protect the status quo, and Socrates was seen and as this. That, if you like, the powers that be are the establishment, so called, would have been concerned to protect the interests of the yes, state. Yes, exactly. And therefore, came to justify it becomes a conclusion. Yeah. Like Socrates was actually guilty because he was sort of a, in fact, uh, the, the net result of Socrates is sort of uh, preaching, if you like, or, 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 or communications. It was sort of a, people were less, had less confidence in the state. Correct. In a way, you're right that he was subverting it. But of course, we believe he was true in what he was saying in a sense. But you're the question, Albert, about. Yeah, but then that makes him guilty on that one. On that one, well, according to the laws of the state. Yes, yeah. Um, but of course, the impiety question, he was regarded as impious, or he was charged with atheism. Now, this is the interesting atheism isn't a belief in no God. In, it's not saying, I don't believe in God, it's a belief in no gods. Now, Socrates was convicted of atheism because the other definition of atheism was he was introducing new gods to those recognized by the Athenian state. So he was, he was condemned for those two things. Corrupting the minds of the young and atheism. And did atheism in the Athens in the Athens of Socrates say that impiety in their terms mean atheism? The term itself, atheism, has changed meaning completely. But in a sense, an atheist is somebody who believes, don't they? I mean, it is a form of belief that there is no God. So. I'd qualify there, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. In what way? Should we get into this? I'm very comfortable with the, the, my perception that uh, uh, it's, it's a minority decision. Uh, I'm very comfortable with my ageism. And, yeah. and, and I don't think there are war games about uh, you believe in the small gods. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah, it, can, it can be a bit semantic. But, yeah. but philosophers are always trying to um, to distinguish and unpick and unravel. Yeah. Yeah. No, I liked your comments about Socrates outside the court, and really, you know, he was 
totally intelligent too. So yeah. nobody would really touch him. He smiled on everything because here he was going to yeah. court himself. Yeah. And he was having, you know, that was his yeah, absolutely. absolutely. total attention. He seemed to have been just unruffled or untouched by the affairs of the state, even when his own life was being put on the line. Extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing too is, as you're talking there, I'm, try I'm all the time trying to resurrect my Latin because, you know, to, to, to bring all these words back to the Latin of origin uh, gives you a huge yeah, it does. Sense from the Greek, yeah, yeah. through the Latin, it, it does, because the etymology of word, words show up Even so the much. Verbs yes, oh, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Okay, will we go on? Yes. yes. So, all the, all the dialogues have a question, <coughs> and these are some of them. What is piety, is the euthyphro? What is virtue, the meaning? What is meaning, the sophist? What is love, the symposium? What is justice, the republic? What is friendship, the lysis? What is creation, the Timaeus? What is knowledge, the Theotetus? So all these dialogues are really concerned with a question. And that little joke there is how wonderful that you know what virtue is and to think you're only 20 years old. <laughs> so Socrates, of course, is, is old by the you know, in those days. And he's with this youngster who's, uh, he's wondering, well, he's so certain. He's so certain of his position. So what do we do when we, when we encounter a young person who's so convinced that what we're saying is utter rubbish? So it is annoying, but Socrates <coughs> just approaches it differently. <laughs> so Euthyphro wonders, what brings Socrates from his usual haunts in the Lyceum to the porch of King Archon? He's a magistrate who inherited the priestly functions formerly held by the king and presided all religious trials. So that's the... Um, the question that what brings him here because he's normally walking around at the various stalls of Simon and the, all the, the people who are um, mechanics and farmers and, and all sorts of things having great questions and they always said about Socrates that he used to walk around all these shops um, looking at things he knew he didn't need reminding him that he didn't need to have them and that's a lovely definition of gratitude actually I think so we're coming back to this twofold charge, corruption and impiety. Socrates tells Euthyphro that Meletus, or Meletus, there's also Anatus, there's a few of them, has brought an action against him. And he describes him, sorry, the him now is Euthyphro, as undistinguished, a young man with long, sorry, it's not, it's Meletus, with long straight hair and a thinnish beard and a rather beaky nose. So Socrates is getting the poke out of it here. And Socrates says, Miletus claims to know how the characters of the young actually get corrupted. He has denounced Socrates for corrupting his contemporaries like a little boy telling his mother. That's Socrates' term. He's like a little boy telling his mother. So, I mean, yes, Socrates is detached to it, but he is implicated. And um, I suppose we can't fault him for getting some of his, maybe it is, maybe it's a, do you see it as that, as his irritation there, or just a, a factual description? I think it's an, it's an assessment. He's An assessment, yeah. yeah he's yeah. so present, yeah. he doesn't need to Poke justify, or, you know, yeah. he, does, he doesn't really need to, but it's, it's, yeah, it's just the facts of the matter, yeah. and it's yes. very present and very alive. Yes, yeah, yeah, nice, okay, thank you. So, Socrates, he says that I'm an inventor of new gods. Euthyphro, it is because you're saying that you're constantly visited by your supernatural voice. Now, the supernatural voice is very interesting. 
Is it God? Is it his own conscious? Is it the self? What's yeah. the difference? Yeah. Albert, you know? The difference between God and self and... and, and, and uh, yeah, what? your question about, you know, sometimes we, we make all these distinctions. <coughs> Maybe there's no need to be made. What the three options? Like God. the unconscious God or oneself. Yeah. So it could be all the same. I obviously would say oneself. Yeah. Uh, at one point, this is interlocutor. Yes. Rather than saying the supernatural yeah, voice, interlocutor, right. I think uh, Dr. Horan actually mentioned all the time. Yeah. yeah. something interlocutor is actually giving the answer to him. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> absolutely. He sometimes refers to the Ottoman. Yeah. As a priestess of Mantinea. And the word diamond is interesting because, again, going back to our Latin, it's coming to the English as demon or spirit. But demon is negative for us. It's not the way that's meant by Socrates. So it's this kind of guide or self or God. Any of those things will do. See, it would be very hard to distinguish between self and, 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 and the conscience, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, you know, it's very hard to distinguish all these things. And to understand what he means by that, of course. There's hints, of course. So in the Cratylus, for instance, Plato himself talked about diamond as deity, is synonymous with, with wise, with wisdom, actually. And in the symposium, uh, Diotima comes along, who's this kind of prophetess philosopher, and Socrates always says that he knows nothing except what she taught him. And again, if you're Jungian, you could call that the anima in Socrates. So there's different ways of looking at all these, different hermeneutic interpretations. I, I just... In terms of the healing process for uh, the sense I always had, the Scabian sort of thing, is that you went, everything came from the gods, yeah. you, your disease. So how you cured that is that you went to the god within, yes. had yeah, the trust exactly. to discover. So there isn't the lines that we have. That's right. Yes, absolutely. And in Plato's Gallery of the Cave, you've the descent into yes. the soul, the ascent into the light. So that's part of the dialectic, and, they, and they're one, it's, it's a journey into selfhood, if you like. So in the Apologies, Socrates claims to have this, what he calls a divine something. Note that he himself isn't defining it. A divine something, a je ne sais quoi, that warned him, maybe his conscience or the self. It's just a way of looking at it. So we have this great debate between duty and desire, devotion and um, desire, law and justice, lady justice, holding the balance, the scales. Justice for Plato's harmony, by the way. So, Socrates tells Euthyphro, there's no knowing how the case will turn out, little dick maybe, maybe not, except for you prophets. Now, <laughs> we're wondering, is he being sarcastic, is he being serious, is he genuinely thinking, well maybe this guy is, we don't really know yet. Socrates is told that Euthyphro was there in a case of his own which involves prosecuting his father for manslaughter. Socrates is shocked, as it isn't everyone who would take such a case, but only one who is advanced in wisdom, he says to Euthyphro. And of course Euthyphro is probably lapping this up, and the details of the case, I'm sure probably you know this, do you from Michael? So I'll, I'm, I'm speaking quickly, sorry about this, just because I'm assuming you know some of the details here. The deceased was a day labourer, working on Miletus' farm, family farm, the person, this person got drunk, lost his temper with one of the servants and knifed him. Euthyphro's father, right, the father of Euthyphro, bound him, this is the servant who did this, uh, uh, hand and foot and threw him into a ditch and he subsequently died there. So 
that's the situation. And Euthyphro is taking this case against his own father. Um, so we'll see what happens here. The indictment is impiety. That's Herbert Spencer, by the way, not uh, anybody would be familiar with in ancient Athens. The question, is it an act of impiety for a son to prosecute his father for manslaughter? Now, Euthyphro in his defence mentions not the law of the state, but the divine law. And Aquinas takes this later and says that the divine law, the eternal law, is written in the human heart, and that's called the natural law. So the natural law is the eternal law written in our heart, which differs from the positive law of the state. Big question, what happens when the law of the state brings a law in that contravenes or contradicts the divine law? Hitler did it. What do we do? So Thomas Aquinas is very clear, Socrates has been clear, who always obeyed the divine law. And um, Thomas's sentence, Lex injusta non est lex, an unjust law is not a law. Interesting, isn't it? It's a perversion of the law. And Sir William Scott once said, addressing his fellow barristers, I can't tell you much about the law being far more interested in justice. But of course, the law should reflect justice. Frequently it doesn't. Frequently it's reduced to a rhetorical game, of course, of course, as we know in the courts. So Socrates is wondering whether he really understands this divine law. In other words, what makes actions pious and impious? And he says, of course, there's no fear that you yourself are committing an act of impiety. Euthyphro is a bit thrown by this. But he says, well, no. And Socrates decides to become his pupil. That's amazing. <laughs> And while away some time before his own court case. I thought that was a great phrase for Herbert Spencer. Volumes might be written upon the impiety of the pious. <laughs> and again, it's what Socrates, what would get his vote on people claiming to be something other than they are. Would a really wise person proclaim from the rooftop his wisdom? You know what I mean? And Socrates is a bit adverse to people doing that. Now, we always start, I remember my maths teacher in boarding school used to shout this out at us and terrifies, know your definitions. So Socrates always begins with that question, usually always begins. How do you define piety and impiety? Euthyphro says, well, piety consists in prosecuting a wrongdoer for manslaughter or temple robbery. Okay, that's fine. Socrates tells him that that's a feature, that's an example. Yeah. It's not a definition. So Socrates is always seeking, and Plato through him, the archetype, the pattern, the form, the essence, the blueprint. Does that make sense? And five definitions follow. So far so good. Definition one. Euthyphro says, what is agreeable to the gods is pious, and what is disagreeable to them impious. I mean, that's a particularly good definition, it seems to me. Just to start off something, a 20-year-old saying this, I think that's pretty good. What's agreeable to the gods is pious. We can probably see immediately a few of the problems there, agreeable, and is that subjective, and what happens if there's many gods, will they all disagree? So, but it's a good start, isn't it? Socrates is listening to this, and then he says, look, Euthyphro, earlier you said the gods were divided amongst themselves as to what constitutes pious and impious acts. So, perhaps, what is agreeable to one god, Zeus, mightn't be agreeable to another. So, what do we do? Euthyphro wonders and thinks that's good. 
and asked Socrates, and Socrates says, well, why don't we reformulate it thus? What all the gods hate is impious, and what they all love is pious. Yeah? Good? Yeah. We'll see what happens. The key question is this. The absolutely key question is the whole dialogue turns. Is what is pious, Socrates wonders, loved by the gods because it's pious, or is it pious because it is loved? Does the action of loving alter it? Now, there's a bit of a confusion, so I'll just keep going around because we'll, it's like the Our Father's a child, you don't get to the end of the journey, you can't really, you forget what's in the middle. So, there's the, a confusion is setting in here a bit. Rufifro doesn't understand what Socrates means, so he's left a bit, um, oh, what's going on? And you'll always get this in dialogues, there's a confusion, or lots of them, and then there's clarity. So philosophy is seen as a lictum, hydrotoxic clearing. It's a clearing of the mind. It's an opening, an aperture into being. So, Socrates' clarification. We don't see a thing because it is a seen thing, but on the contrary, it is a seen thing because we see it. The latter is where we get it. What is pious is loved because it is pious, and not pious because it's loved. So Socrates is chiding Euthyphro for not disclosing piety's essence, but rather describing an accident. So just to stop there, if I, the next time you see me, if I put on two stone or lost two stone, it's far more likely the former than the latter. But anyway, my, I come before you changed. So I'm bigger. The change is a change in my quantity. But you still know it to be me. So even though there's a change in my quantity or quality of life, so instead of coming up here in my sports car, I come up here in my Rolls Royce, my quality of life externally has changed, but I haven't. If, my ch if, my, if during the week I've become a father or a, an uncle, my change in relation to somebody else has changed. So that's a change in quantity, quality and relation. Now those changes are real, but they're not radical. Does that make sense? They're nominal because they haven't affected me in my being. I'm still me. Whatever that means, I'm still Stephen. I'm yeah. still trying to find out what, what does that mean. But that's substance, the essence of something. So Socrates is always interested in the substance of something, not in the shadow of the something. Does that make sense? Like yeah. in real happiness rather than in pleasure. So this is what he's always going on about. What is just an accident is a property, is a quality. He's interested in the thing itself. And so Euthyphro is funny here. He says, oh yes, Socrates, they keep shifting their position <laughs> of the subject, meaning he keeps shifting his, the meaning of the subject. Now, that's the way it's, you could just read that phrase um, in logic. And you can see it gets a bit convoluted. P is true, P is not true. P is true for George, but not true for Mary. No, P is either true or false, and we may not know which. And on and on it goes, if you play the game of semantics and rhetoric and get caught into these things. Some of which are important. Sometimes you do need the definitions, but the conversation around it is usually more important. Now, Socrates wants their statements to be held good. He prefers this than to have all the wealth of Tantalus, son of an earth goddess of wealth. His prosperity brought punishment in Tartarus. He was made to stand in a pool of water beneath a fruit tree with low branches, with the fruit ever eluding his grasp and the water receding before he could drink it. Our word comes from that tantalizing. 
the skill of tantalizing, it's a little bit out of reach, but we want it. Or the skill of Daedalus, this is the inventor of many arts, including sculpture. And that's a reference, as, reference to Socrates' father, who was a sculptor, his mother was a midwife. So he's saying, wisdom is wealth. And I think that's just a lovely, just a lovely way of looking at it. And then the wealth of wisdom as well. So Socrates' definition, what is pious is morally right. What is pious is morally right, but what is morally right is not always pious. So Socrates instructs Euthyphro, lovely phrase, put yourself together. Now I quite like that because he's suggesting that there isn't, he's not coming from a place of unity, but from disunity. A bit like the division of the gods. And conversation has to imply an internal coherence rather than division. And the analogy is this, where there is fear, there is reverence, that's a proposition. Socrates is saying, no, because you can fear disease, can't you? And show no reverence to it. But where reverence is, their respect is too. Do you see how it's changed? And Socrates is agreeing with this one. Reverence is a kind of fear. So it depends on the logic you're using. For instance, I remember in, in UCD logic, if grass is green, it doesn't mean green is grass. So the logic works one way, but not the other way. So do, does that, is that analogy, I think it's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. That it's not the case that where there is fear, there is reverence, but where reverence is, their fear yeah. is too. And I'll give you another analogy, we're okay for time, which is, that was just a quick quote, as an interview that I found from Aristotle. Men are swayed more by fear than by reverence, just because we're on the topic of reverence. Okay. This joke brings it out the best I can. <laughs> a Jesuit and a Franciscan were friends who were both smokers. They found it difficult to pray for a long period of time without having a cigarette. They decided to ask their respective superiors for permission to smoke. When they met again, the Franciscan was downcast. I asked my superior if I could smoke while I prayed, and he said no. The Jesuit said, I asked if I can pray while I smoked, and he said, of course. Now, to be honest, that joke sums up, doesn't it, the whole of the dialogue, and it's depending on how it's phrased. So, can I smoke while I pray? Can I pray? while I smoke. And it's a very different thing. And, and Socrates is coming from the position of the latter, the Jesuit. Socrates as Jesuit here, not Franciscan. Poor old Franciscan there, like a soft spot for both orders actually. But. So I know it's a joke, but doesn't that sum up quite well? I mean, that really is getting to the crux of, of the thing. Now, Socrates says, where there is piety, there is moral rectitude. But where there's rectitude, there is not always piety. That's what we've established in a sense. What kind of moral rectitude is piety? Piety, that word I was saying earlier, tendence to the gods, tending to them. And then the question is, well, is it a benefit to them? Does it make them better? It's a good question. Like, what's the point in praying if they, God knows everything in advance? Well, you're not doing it for him or it, the grander being, but for oneself, of course. What is the object to be achieved? which service to the gods would be rendered. What supremely splendid work is it that the gods accomplish by using our services? So Socrates is putting all these questions to him. Euthyphro says, well, piety is what is pleasing to the gods. Impiety, the opposite. So what is pleasing? How do we please the gods? Through prayers and sacrifices. Piety is now reduced, isn't it? 
to accountancy, to an art of balancing the books, giving and receiving, a sort of commerce, great phrase from Socrates, between gods and men. And Euthyphro is clearly uncomfortable. He's being sort of shown up as he's not getting it properly, not getting it correct. And he says, yes, if you like. So I'd say he's now getting quite irritated. And of course, Socrates doesn't like this. He wants it not to be subjectively liked, but he wants it to be objectively true. Now, the view here is we have nothing good that the gods don't give us. That's obvious for Socrates. What is not so obvious is what the gods get from us. Euthyphro says gratitude. Another good question, so, uh, sorry, answer. Socrates says, so piety is what is gratifying to the gods, but not beneficial to them. So he's showing up a few traps here. Euthyphro says, piety is what is dear to the gods. Socrates says, we have come full circle to the point from which we started. Now, as the reader, when you get to that place in the dialogue, there's a kind of frustration setting in. You're thinking, well, what's going on? What, what, what's just been said? And it's left hanging a bit. And one way of <coughs> figuring out why it's left hanging is this phrase from T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So Socrates is leading us around and things are being kind of thrown <coughs> up in the air and definitions caught and critiqued and other definitions found and then we're going this way and that way like a labyrinth. But the more we encircle and going round and round, the circle is revealed as less <coughs> vicious and more virtuous. Because very soon Socrates is going to go into the same court case and not engage in any rhetoric, not bring in the family and the emotions and just stay there silently and speak the truth from a source of inner strength from the self and not from being so enthralled by the play of creation. So that's what makes it in a way an extraordinary dialogue because of the context which is very real and very um, extreme. And we'll give this last slide and we'll take a break. How's that? That's the one that Michael's put on your sheet. But Euthyphro, you have only gone round in a circle and not explained piety at all. Euthyphro says, uh, excuse me, I've got to go now. <laughs> so Euthyphro now is just really fed up. He wants to bolt. Socrates, do your best now to give me your closest attention. Is that a lovely phrase? Give your attention, pay attention, attend. And that means in Latin as well, to wait on comes out of the French, a tongue's word, to wait on. And tell me, not an opinion, but the truth. Remember Plato's fiction between doxa and aletheia, between opinion and truth, in the divided line metaphor. What does Euthyphro say? Another time, Socrates. At the moment, I have an urgent engagement somewhere, and it's time for me to be off. And then Socrates says, what a way to be treated. I'd hope to learn about piety. The implication, of course, is that he learned nothing. And to live better for the rest of my life. He must have known there's a good chance he wasn't going to be around for a very long time. We call it irony. And that's how the dialogue finishes. The trial comes next, and then comes the, the trial and the apologia, which means defence in Latin. 
not an apology, not saying sorry. And that's where the next book in this volume comes from. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, great. We'll take a break. Thank you. Thanks. What's important to note here is that each of Euthyphro's definitions failed, but rather than correct his faulty logic, he leaves. So sometimes we have to stay the course and just question our own beliefs and just persevere, no matter how uncomfortable it can be. So Socrates' injunction is, take time correcting your own preconceptions and reasoning. So even though Euthyphro couldn't define piety, he couldn't help Socrates in his own defence either against impiety. So Socrates is left in the lurch a little bit, but of course he has his own convictions in place. Now, five definitions are offered. And as Ducky said, if I do this in any depth, I'm depriving Michael of going through them with you. So I might just do this quite quickly and not go into any detail. Is that okay? It wouldn't be fair. But Michael does a close textual analysis, which is amazing. And I just sort of an overview. So we think we work well together. I don't know if, you're, if that works yes, or not. But yes. So this is the summary. The first is, piety is what Euthyphro is doing now, i.e. prosecuting his father. Now, remember Socrates rejects that because he says that's an example of piety, if indeed it is piety. It's not a definition. So it's not going to the substance, yes. the essence. Mm -hmm. Next we have, she was saying there about what is pleasing to the gods and yourself. Piety is what is pleasing to the gods. But how do we know what the gods, how do we know that the gods are pleased and what does it mean to please the gods, etc.? So Socrates picks up on Euthyphro's point that even the gods disagree amongst themselves. This is the polytheism of his time. So then the third one, Euthyphro says, well, what all the gods love is pious. So he's amending his definition. And what all the gods hate is impious. Socrates poses what would later, of course, be known as the famous Euthyphro dilemma. To sum up, is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Now, of course, on some level, as, as Albert said as well there, this is linguistically convoluted, and it's reduced translators to, quote somebody, babble, and driven commentators to despair. But anyway, the fourth definition, um, piety is a species of the genus justice. Do you remember we did that very briefly? Mm -hmm. It's a form of justice. And finally, piety is an art of sacrifice, and prayer. Now, Socrates is against the proposition, pious is what is loved by the gods, just because the gods love it, because he says that's an attribute. Now, I'm repeating this because I think it's important, because he's always trying to get us to the essence. Divine approval doesn't define piety. It's like when Kierkegaard was asked what he thought of the proofs of God's existence from Thomas Aquinas. He said, surely it's an impertinence to prove God's existence under his very nose. <laughs> so sometimes the logic only gets us so far, and the rest of the way is faith or belief, the, the leap of faith. Centuries later, Leibniz asked whether the good is good and just because God wills it, or whether God wills it because it is good and just. That's just to know centuries later that Leibniz looks back to this little dialogue for that famous question. So I've got there, should Al Aquinas be forgotten? So is this Euthyphro dilemma a real or a false one? Are justice and goodness arbitrary? Or do they belong to the nature of things? I'm not saying I have an answer, or Plato has. Well, Plato has an answer. 
Euthyphro doesn't give us the nature of piety, but only a quality and an example. And then these are questions for me, for you. Surely actions are right or wrong in themselves, independent of God's commandments. Surely morality can't be dependent on religion, because what about atheists who are very moral, sometimes a lot more moral than believers? So where does that leave us? That's me. <laughs> and Aquinas says not even God can change the Ten Commandments, which is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. So we now have the horns of a dilemma. If there are moral standards independent of God, then morality would retain its authority even if God did not exist, wouldn't it? So you can say it can be moral, it's not about God, so it doesn't matter whether God exists or not, morality is intact. To which Dostoevsky famously said, but if God is dead, famous quote from Nietzsche, yeah. you know Nietzsche said, God is dead, the madman says, you and I have killed him, we are all of us are his murderers. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. We have bled him to death under our knives. So Dostoevsky's response to that, well, if God is dead, all is permitted. I seen, um, is it? Seen, I seen a piece of graffiti a couple of years ago, and it was signed by God, and it said, Nietzsche is dead. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. <laughs> Nietzsche is dead. God. <laughs> in, in all this permitted, there's a choice from that. Yes. Whereas, exactly. I mean, if, if this morality is at the behest of the gods, it means there's control in that. That's right. That it takes away our free will. There's control. That yeah. even if God yes. is all known, yes. he's controlling us. That's right. We're compelled. Yeah. So, or... That which is right is right because commanded by God. That's the divine command theory. In other words, there's no moral standard other than God's will. But then there's no other reason for morality or God. In other words, I remember Paul Ricoeur telling me, he's a famous French philosopher of the last century before he died, he was in his 90s, and he was, uh, he was saying to me, um, yes, that a lot of faith is based on a religion we believe because we, we, we fear punishment or desire paradise. And he would have said that religion has to go beyond both fear, fear. of punishment and desire for reward. That one should be good and Iris Murdoch, I have her in the next slide. Remember I said this in one of my lectures here before, one must be good for nothing. Yeah. In other words, yeah. not dependent on a reward or reciprocity or recognition. That it's for nothing, it's good in itself. Yeah. As Plato said, virtue is its own reward, yeah. even though it leads to happiness. I, I'm just a little bit confused. Morality seems to me to have to do with good and not good. Yes. Right and wrong. Yeah. All of those kind of, and those yeah. kind of decisions. I'm not, I don't see that as being synonymous with piety. Mm. Because it, it seems to me piety points to that beyond you're, abs you're absolutely right, and, yeah. Okay. You know, you're absolutely right. Piety okay. has that connotation. Yeah. It's inscribed in a way within a religious register. And it has God as, as object. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Maybe, Stephen, on the, the word religion. Yes. This, this maybe a, what's the, et you know, you the etymology means yeah. to be bound to, religare, okay. to be held by, to be tied to. Okay. So it's an interesting word, to be bound by something other than encased in ego. I mean, hell is encased in ego, the symbol hell. And then heaven is living in the sumptuousness of the self, in a sense.
Sorry, that's not the issue of what you asked. Yeah, just, I'm free yeah. association. It's a, it's a terrible <laughs> pillar there, isn't it? But, but those are the landscapes of religion. Yes, they are. That's, that's yeah. a yeah. huge way of putting it. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to say, that, that virtue or excellence or arete is its own reward. So we're not good for something, but even though it, it has as a side effect, it brings us to eudaimonia, happiness or flourishing, kind of spiritual joy, really, uh, is what that word means. The sovereign good which all desire, according to Iris Merlin, there she is there, one must be good for nothing. It's just a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Yeah. Because you know what, in the Irish colloquial language we have that phrase, yeah. you're such a good for nothing. Yeah. It's meant in a negative way. You know? yeah. Just a good for nothing. So, we're going to come back to morality and religion. That's what the dialogue is about, really. These two modalities of being, the good and the holy. Plato, Socrates, is putting us all on trial. I think I'd like to make that point strongly, because it's not just Socrates on trial, he's putting our beliefs on trial. Stephen, why, uh, kind of a, kind of a silly, sounding, silly sounding question, but I'm not saying it's silly. Um, um, I'd appreciate a kind of frank answer. Why do you think we're so bad, people in general are so bad, why are we so bad as questioning our own, I forget what was on the screen, but convictions, let's say. Why are we so bad at that? Why are we so bad at? Questioning our own sort of convictions. I think because if we begin the road of questioning our own convictions and assumptions, and that's when philosophy really begins, when we do that dialectically, it wounds our ego. There's a wound to us because we're, we're egoically embroiled. We've a lot to lose. And we don't feel we've a lot to gain. So when people let go of something, they realize that their attachment, which is broken or identification, is a loss. It's configured in the mind as a loss, rather than as letting go for more, for more than this. Yeah. I think that could be something to do with it. That's actually a wound to the ego. Yeah. Because why, wise people, men and women, who don't live from the small little dot of an ego, if you can imagine a circle and a black dot in the middle, the black dot is the ego. A lot of us live there. Plato symbolized this with the cave analogy we're seeing the play of creation, or we're looking at the fire, we're not out in the sunlight. Mm. So are we unaware of, of, of... Yes, we're unaware. And it takes, it, takes, uh, it takes an immense being to drop all these egoic identifications. And that's where the philosophy starts, actually. Yes, it does, I think so. Yeah. Michael gave me a good quote last week. He said, surrender your brilliance. Yes. I think that's very yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Surrender your brilliance. Yeah. Seed it. Socrates yeah. is always seeding his yeah. centre to the other, but yeah. he's getting it back. I mean, he never loses it. Yeah. It's always there, but it's seeded in dialogue. Yeah. But there's a huge threat to us if we, yeah. if you, if you, if you have to, uh, you have to change your mind, there's a huge Right, uh, you're, you're, you have a homely stance. That's right. Kind of There's a church your worldview and your image. Which, is, which, which we view as kind of really, in, in many senses, as, as kind of uh, very, as a death. death That's right. Absolutely. It, it can feel like a death. You can equate that with all the politics that we're surrounded yes. by right now. You know, the Fine Fall identity, the Fine yes. identity, the left identity, right. all that is all ego based. Yeah, yeah. identity-based and fear of losing it. That's right. I think behind all identification attachment is fear. I'm writing a book on fear at the moment and I'm trying to work out <laughs> the dynamics of it, etc. But it seems that behind a lot of it is just this 
fear, fear of loss, yeah. Yeah. losing something, identity. So yeah, that's, I, yes. I, I think it's a lot easier to be moral, if you like, than it is to be holy. And when you <coughs> see someone who you feel is holy, like Sister Stan, I would say, yeah. you admire them. And yeah. you, you know that yeah. they're mm. a higher being. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think it's easier to just do what you think is the right thing yeah. than to achieve that level. I'm not too happy with pious because yeah. it's Latin and I like, I don't know what the Greek <coughs> is, but I'm sure it, it feels different to me because mm. pious feels, you know, like from... Well, we've, we've, ago, we were yes, our English association is yeah. very pious. It's not well, a nice it's not quality. Yeah. It's not a great yeah. quality. Yeah. I'm sure there's a better Greek word. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an interesting point you make yeah. about it. It's sometimes easier to be good than holy. Yeah. But um, Iris Murdoch says the person who is good is more likely to be the one who is holy. Yes. Okay. Not yeah. Yeah. I'll pause yeah. on that. Yeah. I've, I've loved you after my PowerPoint because yeah. I've, I've been deprived of it so the last time. So, so he's putting our character, ethos, at the heart of ethics. Ethics in, in Latin is etiquette, ethos, it means character. That's at the heart of ethics is character. And conscience is a source of wisdom. So this question of, of ethics was raised already by Plato earlier in the Republic in the famous ring of, I've heard, Gyges or Gyges. I was taught Gyges, I'm not sure I say Gyges. But remember that, the shepherd boy, yeah. son of Lydia, goes into a cavern, another cave, a symbol, finds the ring. If he turns the bezel, he becomes invisible. And if he turns it back in, he becomes visible. So there's no hint he'll be punished or detected. What would we do? He just goes out, seduces the queen, kills the king, seizes the throne. So if we hold out a ring, and it's in the hobbit, isn't it, as well, the yeah, famous symbol yeah. of the ring, then we could become invisible. Plagius putting to it to us, what would we do? And he says, even the good man would do nothing. He would just do what's good because it's good. Especially if he's deprived of being rewarded or put in prison or something, he'll still do it because it's good. Remember the famous phrase of Plato, it is better to suffer injustice than to do it. Yes. Beautiful phrase. So can goodness be taught? Now this is my sort of simple way of looking at it. It's more often caught than taught. So as you rightly said, Nula, then, if you're, if you're in the company of somebody who's wise or good or still, then something of their being, something, something graceful, uh, touches your own soul and you're changed. So I think you catch it rather than you're taught it, if that makes sense. A shepherd boy, we've said that. So. And I suppose the test of time is important. Truth, we're told, will always stand the test of time. Michael says this, doesn't he? Enough. Truth will always stand the test of time. It will never change because it's unchanging. And these are just some things in philosophy that are helpful. The publicity test, it's a bit like this. How would I feel if my contemplated actions were exposed and reported all over the internet or newspapers? How would I feel coming here this morning if you read something about me that said something that was unworthy of me or what I think something about myself? The mentor test. How would I feel if my actions were seen by my most revered mentors that feel let down or by my family? The role model test, and we have it in the school here, what would the wise say or do? What would my greatest role model do here? And then the mirror test. If I do this, will I be able to look at myself in the mirror? 
with the same sense of pride. I mean, good pride. Pride can be a, a deadly sin as well. So, is that okay? There are four little tests which yeah. I think are interesting. The publicity one, the mentor one, the role model one, and the mirror. Just when we're talking about ethics. And Plato is always trying to bring us... Sorry, can you see there? So we've got, as Sartre said, l'être l'unéant, being and nothingness. And becoming. So you've got being what is, what is not, and becoming is this movement, this change. And the phenomenal world is the world of becoming. It's the world of endless change, generation, corruption, decay, dissolution. So it's from, you know, from, let's say, going to Tamas, which is dissolution. And there's something beyond this phenomenal world, which is the world beyond the physical, which Plato is calling the metaphysical. And that's the world of unchanging essence. And that's the world of being. If this is the world of becoming, that's the world of being. Remember in the Plato's allegory of the cave, the sun was the source of visibility, the good was the source of intelligibility. As the sun is in relation to this visible world of change, the good is in relation to the unchanging world of the forms. So Socrates is doing a number of things. He's teaching us how to analyze, assess, and argue three things. And he's showing this. He's not just arguing, he's showing this in his very life, not just in his speech, but in his life. And when he's arguing, he's asking Euthyphro and all his interlocutors and all the dialogues, he's asking, is it coherent? Is your argument, is your position on the subject coherent? Does it have a consistency? Is it concise? And is it comprehensive? And is it correct? In philosophy, that's the famous definition of knowledge, properly justified, true belief. That's a lot to take in, I suppose, but just, um, I think that sums up nicely the dialectic from, from A to C, in a way, from analyze, I just, that's not meant to be taken seriously, to um, the three C's there, the three A's and the three C's, is that okay? Analyze, assess, argue, coherence, concise, correct. Okay. So Nietzsche, that's Nietzsche there, um, who went kind of mad in 1889. And um, Nietzsche said about Socrates, I think it's a beautiful phrase, Socrates teaches you how to listen. He defines the hidden and forgotten treasure, the drop of goodness from whose touch you go away richer. And that's beautiful. And he talked with himself a lot in silence. It was kind of an examine of consciousness. He asked great questions, always open-ended ones, drawing out a jacare, inviting, eliciting, never imposing. He challenged convention. His questions, I think, changed us. So even in this dialogue, where the question is left, in a way, a little hanging, although to some extent it's not, by the way, um, even then, the questions change us. As Rilke, the poet, the beautiful poet Rilke says, live the question. So to, it's to stay in that uncertainty for a while. Isn't it really? Until more answers emerge. And really, Socrates is saying, it's not just the answer that's important, it's to know what type of question to put. And he gives this beautiful analogy, you probably know this one, with the charioteer from the Phaedrus. Well, two analogies we look at. This is the first one, one of my favourites, the allegory of the charioteer. And this is describing the nature of the soul. Two winged horses and the charioteer. You can see the picture of it there. One of the horses is noble, the other is ignoble. 
Driving them is difficult. The right-hand horse is guided by the word and by honour. The other animal is indolent and insolent and needs the whip and the spur. This vicious steed goes heavily, we're told, weighing down the charioteer to the earth, which leads to conflict in his soul. The charioteer must drag the bit in his teeth before he submits to the will of the charioteer. Now, it's a violent, vivid, vicious, visceral image, and it's indelibly on the mind because it's a symbol of what we do with our instincts, what the ego does to the self or the soul. So it's all about conditioning, which is the ego we're talking about, and the natural presence of the self. And questions arise from that. When I do sometimes this stuff with businessmen, I then get very practical and ask them, well, what drags you down? What drives you? What draws you? What spurs you on? I'm using the image there. Do you consult with your conscience the better angels of your nature? So in other words, when we're in our own chariot, what horse is driving us? So in a way, Plato is calling us to harmony, inner harmony, which is his definition of justice. And that's a kind of a tri-dimensional unity, three dimensions, which lead to wholeness in the body, the mind and the soul. That's one way of putting it. In different traditions you can talk about body, mind, spirit, or, and there's, again, a bit of confusions around these terms like soul and spirit. But I think that's a nice analogy. And the second one is what I call the drag and the draw from the cave. Uh, sorry, from the well, it's from the cave, there's the picture, and then from the laws is the famous uh, image of the puppet, which I really like. I'll just take you through it. Two chords, I think I've said this before, are attached to us. It, the view is here, the person is a puppet of the gods. One is the golden thread, which draws us upwards to the divine realm. The other is the, is the steely cord, attached to the soles of our feet, dragging us down to Hades, to the underworld. So, what drags us down? What draws us up? And Plato and Socrates were attracted to the good, to the transcendent, imminent, absolute, as the ground of being. It's the source of the divine draw. Source of ultimate attraction. So we'll finish off with just the last few slides. One, I just came across this very recently, a poem of Paean pay pay of Praise to um, Socrates. I roast in the sun, old wretch. I lie and yawn, I stretch. Old am I, but full of pep. When I take a slug from the cup, I sing. My ancient bones bask in the sun's glow, and my curly, wise grey head. In that wise head, like woods in the spring, hums and hums a wiser wine. Eternal thoughts flow and flow like time. I think that's a beautiful uh, poem. Yes, yes, um, yes. Just to see the stillness in Socrates' soul as he faces his own execution. And always pointing to the higher, and not the lower, to, I suppose, the person as a natural aristocrat, when he talks about the, the uh, five types, I think it is, of leadership. And so to finish up, that's a wrap. This is a song from my, my friend who I saw in concert once and he dragged me to it. No Church in the Wild from the album Watch the Throne by this rapper Jay-Z. He references the Euthyphro dilemma with the line, Is pious, pious, could God, cause God loves pious, Socrates asked, whose bias do you all seek? <laughs> so I thought it ended in a rap, which is a <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you.